The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, greetings to all those who are here this morning and then all those watching via the live stream or in the chapel. We're glad you're here with us as we now open God's word. So would you join me as I pray one more time and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And may you use them this morning for the upbuilding of your people so that we would be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, that we would be unshakable in the midst of suffering so that no matter what comes, we would be able to say with all of our hearts that Jesus is better. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you this morning, if I took a survey, would say that I really enjoy suffering? My guess is that none of us would respond in the affirmative. No one relishes, enjoys, or eagerly anticipates suffering unless you're disturbed, unless you're a masochist. There's a dysfunction where you find pleasure from pain, whether it's a fractured collarbone or the symptoms of COVID-19 or chronic migraines or perhaps sending a loved one into hospice care. None of us relishes or likes suffering. And yet this morning, we believe that God has a good purpose for each one of his children in suffering. There's a document called the Elder Affirmation of Faith that all the elders believe, and it writes this about the futility of the world that we're living in right now. It says this, We believe that God has subjected the creation to futility, and the entire human family is made justly liable to untold miseries of sickness and decay and calamity and loss. Thus, all the adversity and suffering in the world is an echo and a witness of the exceedingly great evil of moral depravity in the heart of mankind. And every new day of life is a God-given merciful reprieve from imminent judgment pointing to repentance. So we believe as a church that we live in a fallen world, that creation has been subjected to futility. And a large part of that suffering is because of our sin. But we also believe that God is at work in our world right now, working all things together for good and for his glory. It also says this in that same document. We believe that God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and his governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. So here we have two separate things. We have the suffering of our world that we're all very familiar with. You don't have to look far to see human suffering and pain. 
And then we also have this glorious truth that God is sovereignly in control of all things, ordaining them as he sees fit. Now, how do we reconcile those two things this morning? Very often when we're experiencing suffering, what we want is to draw a straight line. I want to go from my pain to its purpose. God, I want to know right now what it is that I'm suffering for. I want to know what this pain leads to. What's the purpose behind it? And very often we can't draw a straight line. We don't, we don't know all of God's purposes. Not in this life. We won't see the full extent, the full implications, or the full purpose of our pain. But this morning, what we do get is we get a glimpse of how God uses suffering in the lives of believers. And I look out in this room this morning, and, and, and many of you at home or in the chapel as well, I know that we are experiencing a wide range of pain and suffering. From being maligned at work, being asked to sign off on things that you know that your conscience cannot sign off on, to a loved one in hospice, or perhaps that's you. Perhaps your body is being ravaged by cancer. Perhaps a loved one is wayward. We all have different sufferings, all pains, trials, and yet this morning Peter tells us there is a purpose in it all, both for your joy and for God's glory. It's like Joseph. If you remember Joseph, he was sold into slavery, unjustly thrown into prison by Potiphar's wife. And what did he say to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God, God meant it for good. And that's what we get a glimpse of this morning. What man might mean for evil, God uses for good in our lives this morning. And the main point of our passage, as Peter begins this new and final section, he goes back to this theme of suffering once again. And he says, God is using and redeeming your suffering for the sake of Christ to intensify your joy in Jesus. God is using, and not only using, but he's redeeming it the suffering that you're experiencing for the sake of Jesus so that it would intensify and increase your joy in Jesus. Peter wants his readers to have an unshakable foundation because he knows that more suffering is coming. It's like if you lay down a cement foundation. You pour the cement and there's wood on all sides that's kind of containing the cement. And what do sometimes builders put into that cement? They put bars of rebar. Long, stiff metal bars that reinforce that foundation. And that's a little bit what Peter is doing this morning. He's putting bars of rebar into our foundation so that we would be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And our passage, 12 to 14, breaks into two main ideas. God uses suffering. He says, be unsurprised at suffering. And then God redeems suffering. He says, even rejoice in it. So look with me at verse 12. God uses suffering. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Let's not skip over that very first word that Peter uses. He calls them beloved. 
Why does he remind them of this? He's already called them that in chapter 2, verse 11. He wants them to recognize once again, even though you're on the receiving end of suffering, pain, maligning, and slander, it does not mean God has forgotten about you. It does not mean he does not care about you. It does not mean you're being punished. What I want you to hear is that you are beloved by God. You are his child. And for some of us this morning, we might be experiencing pain and and the thoughts crept into our mind. Maybe I'm being punished. Maybe God does not love me. And what you ought to hear this morning is the word beloved. He's written it on our hearts. Now, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He gives us the purpose of these trials. It says it's to test you. This is in line with what he said earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's painting this picture of a refiner's fire. A blacksmith might have a little container. He puts metals in it and he heats it up until it melts down. And he keeps his eye on it so he doesn't burn the metal. But he melts it down so that the impurities would float to the top. And so he can brush them off. And he purifies that metal. It's the very same image that shows up in Malachi chapter 3. Speaking of the Lord as a refiner's fire. Malachi 3.2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For the Lord is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The image there is that God is like a refining fire, but he's drawing a distinction from his wrathful fire, his judgment. He says, this is a refiner's fire. Who's being refined? It's the Levites. They need to be purified so that they would be useful in serving me. And in that same way, suffering in our lives, even some that we're experiencing this morning, as painful as it is, as many tears as it brings, as many sleepless nights as it's given, so that we might be more like Jesus, that we might be more pure, How many of you have prayed, God, make me more like you? I want to be conformed to your image. Well, how does he do that? Very often through hardship and trial and suffering. God is not like a raging forest fire that we see on the west coast or on the northeast or northwest. But he uses his refining fire like a precision instrument perfectly calibrated to accomplish his purposes in the lives of believers. So we don't fear when suffering comes. We're unsurprised because God's using it. He's not letting it rage out of control. He says, don't think of it as something strange were happening to you. Why should we not think of suffering as strange? Because it feels strange. We always say, well, why, why is this happening? I'm a pretty nice guy. Why is suffering coming? And at one level, suffering is strange because it's not the way God created the world. It's not the way it's going to be in heaven. And yet God, through Peter, has reminded us again and again, we are elect exiles. We're living in this world as his people and we're to experience and even expect 
suffering. We are elect exiles. This world is not our ultimate home. It's not where we live our best life now. But rather we're to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness for Jesus. And so... The types of suffering that believers can experience, there's two main types, I think. The fire of affliction, which is very often what Peter's been talking about. When others malign you for the sake of Jesus. Or there's the fire of self-denial, where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. The cross was a source of execution. So there's the affliction where we say, I'm going to kill my sin. There's a certain level of suffering that takes place there. But what Peter's talking about is this fire of affliction. It's the same thing we've seen in James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then steadfastness is to have its full effect so that you would be perfect and complete. Now, let me ask this question. How do you know if you're steadfast? How do you know? When it gets tested. I I had this... I came across this definition for steadfastness, loyalty in the face of trouble and difficulty. So how do you know if you're loyal? When trouble and difficulty come, will we trust in Jesus and his promises in that moment or will we throw in the towel? When suffering comes, will we say, trusting in you, Lord, I'm not going to Run from this suffering because I'm going to align myself with Jesus. Jesus is my treasure. Jesus is my love. He's everything to me. He's better. And so when suffering comes, we're going to align ourselves with Jesus. And it's going to reveal that Jesus truly is praiseworthy. He truly is precious. He truly is all that we need in this life and in the next. Trials don't just test our faith, but it helps us to see that Jesus truly is our treasure. To experience the very truth that Christ is all we need. We can sing songs and say, Lord, you're all sufficient, you're sovereign, you're reliable, you're trustworthy, you're faithful, you're true, you're kind. And yet that gets tested, when the rubber meets the road, when sufferings come, when you get fired or laid off and you know it's because you're a Jesus follower. Or maybe at school, people laugh at you because you pray and they know you go to church, you goody two-shoes. Maybe your neighbors all whisper and slander you Because they know that you're following Jesus. Whatever it may be, and and I have news, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better here where we live. And so slander and maligning, fiery trials are going to come. And they have the purpose of purifying us, but also confirming for us so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is our treasure. It's like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. There was a sower. He spread seed on the ground. Some fell on the path. Some fell in good soil. Some fell on rocky soil. What does it say about that which was scattered on rocky soil? It says it received the gospel, received the good news with joy and sprung up. Oh, he got saved. Wait, it's not the end of the story. 
the, the, the rocky soil and the sun coming out were like tribulation. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, what happens? Immediately he falls away. I don't want any of that. I thought Jesus was a pathway to a better life. And yet when tribulation and persecution comes, I didn't bargain for that. And they fall away. There is a category of person. And how do we know if we're in that category? Well, when suffering comes, we say, Jesus is my treasure. Hold me, sustain me. I'm trusting you in the midst of all that is coming, oh God. Every opportunity, every trial is an opportunity to display the preciousness and the trustworthiness of Christ. So it not only purifies the church, but it strengthens our faith and it confirms for us that we truly are his disciples. You never have to doubt ever again. Sometimes we think, well, Peter, in his moment, Jesus' greatest moment, Peter denied. Like he walked with Jesus, the real life Jesus. He saw him. He heard his teaching firsthand. If Peter fell away, what hope is there for me? And in the same way, if we're willing to suffer with Jesus, we have all the confirmation we need that Jesus is our treasure. He's precious. Suffering is unsurprising because it's assumed throughout the New Testament for all those who are following Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not just the really radical ones. He says all. If you look at the Greek, the all means all. It's everybody. Perhaps not tomorrow, perhaps not right now, but it will come. Hostility will come as we cleave to biblical convictions, as we share the good news with those who don't know Christ. Some will receive it and others will malign us and slander us and as we make disciples. And so this morning, as we live as elect exiles, are we surprised when suffering comes? Are we knocked back on our heels and we say, why, Lord? Or do we take it in stride knowing this is unsurprising for all those who are following Jesus? That when you signed up to follow Jesus, you signed up to die with him and to rise again with him, to suffer with him to bear the marks of the cross on your own body so that we might fill up the afflictions of Christ for others who have not yet met him. And so whatever may come, let the testing of our faith result in greater purity, greater steadfastness, and greater boldness. That's the first strand of rebar that Peter is laying down in that foundation. Know that you are beloved and that God is using this to purify his people, conform them to his image. You shouldn't be surprised, but not only that, it's to confirm in your own heart of hearts that, yes, Jesus is my Lord. Now, these commands, the command in 12 and 13 and 14, function as sort of the two sides of the same coin. We see the negative command, don't be surprised, in verse 12, and now he gives the positive side in verses 13 and 14, rejoicing in suffering. So let's look at our second point, that God redeems suffering. He not only uses it, but he redeems it. First Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter makes a stunning command that you are to rejoice and be glad in sharing in Christ's sufferings. This is exactly what Jesus himself said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. And so we said earlier, no one looks forward to suffering. No one rejoices in suffering unless you're a masochist. So is Jesus calling us to delight ourselves in the experience of pain? No, I don't think so. He gives us this purpose. He says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The purpose of rejoicing, the purpose of our suffering is so that when Jesus' glory is revealed, we will rejoice and be glad. What it does when we share in Christ's sufferings is that it confirms that Jesus is our treasure. We aren't illegitimate children but we're truly his disciples. When Peter and John were beaten, brought before the Sanhedrin and the chief priests in Acts 5.41, what did they say as they were released? Oh, woe is us. We got beaten. No. They said when they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that we were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. We're truly his I know I just denied him on that night, but not anymore. I'm willing to suffer for Jesus, even to be beaten this time. Not in front of a little servant girl, but we're willing to suffer with Jesus. That means we're really his. He's keeping us and his spirit is upon us. We'll get to that later. But the point here is that they were able to rejoice because we're truly his disciples. It proves That Christ truly is our treasure. Suffering confirms that despite the cost, God is redeeming that suffering to confirm in our heart of hearts that Jesus is all that we need. That he's our treasure. That he's our hope in this life and in the next. And we're willing, when the rubber meets the road, to believe it. In our Bible reading plan this week, in John 18, we read if you're doing the Bible reading challenge, that Peter denied Christ. He was ashamed of Jesus in that moment. He didn't want scorn or sideway glances. And for us this morning, whether at public school, maybe at your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at the grocery store, wherever you're at, are we ashamed of Jesus? Are we ashamed of aligning ourselves with him to say that he is our treasure, that he's what we live for. That if the world would give us everything, Jesus would be enough and we don't need any of it. Are we afraid of admitting that you're a follower of Christ? So it helps confirm that Jesus is our treasure. The other thing in this passage that it's saying is that we can rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering for the sake of the name of Christ not only identifies us with Christ, but it means that when Jesus returns, we partake and rejoice in the revelation of his glory. 
Now consider God's glory. On Mount Sinai, there was Moses there. And he said, show me your glory. And he said, you can't, you can't see it. You're going to die. And he says, no, I want to see it. And he said, okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to cover over you. And my backside is going to pass by. And what happened? Moses came down. His face was gleaming. And people said, put a veil over your face because it's too bright. It's too stunning. It's too stark. We don't want to look upon that. And what Peter is saying is that we will be able to behold the glory of the Lord with uncovered face, beholding his glory from one degree of glory to another. So that when Jesus comes back, when the heavens are rendered, Jesus comes down, we will be able to celebrate and rejoice that Jesus has returned. Maranatha. And there will be some who will say, oh dear, Jesus is real. And they'll see that as this is my moment of judgment and condemnation. But all those who are in Christ, we will celebrate and rejoice because our treasure has finally returned. Christ will take us up. We are his and he is ours in that moment. So when it says his glory is going to be revealed, we will behold Jesus in all of the fullness of his glory. We will not die. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're a fanatical Vikings fan, and you think they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. We know it won't happen, but, you know, just bear with me for a second for this illustration. You think the Vikings are really going to win the Super Bowl this year. And then, at the end of the year, they win the Super Bowl. So when the Super Bowl parade happens, you're celebrating like unlike any other fan, because you called it from the beginning. You knew it was going to happen. All these other bandwagon fans that came in on wild card weekend or week 14 or 15 or 16, they're celebrating, but not like you're celebrating because you called it from the very beginning. How much more will God's people celebrate when we see Jesus Christ descend, claim heaven and earth as his rightful territory, rule and reign, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day, when that parade happens, all of God's people will celebrate and there will be no room for bandwagon fans because you were either for him when the suffering came or you were against him. And so when Peter says you're going to be able to rejoice and be glad when you're suffering, because it means you have Christ when he returns, all of that glory ready, waiting for you. You have an inheritance that's waiting for you. It's when the world holds out, you can suffer with Jesus and then get all the privileges of Christ. Reconciled to God, forgiveness of sins, peace, sorrow, yet joy. Holy Spirit dwelling upon you, or you can have all the riches that the world offers. Where in your mind do these things weigh? Prosperity, money, Pleasure. We get, imp- we get incomparable joy when we're believing in Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty six talks about Moses when he weighed these two things. He considered the re- Hebrews eleven twenty six. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So he said. All that I can get in Egypt, plentiful food, power, prosperity, 
when I die, they'll probably mummify me and prepare me for the afterlife. Or I can get the reproach of Christ and all that that brings. And he says, it doesn't even compare. Because he's looking to the greater reward. Revelation 2.10 says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Or Romans 8.18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are what? Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. God gloriously redeems our suffering so that we would intensify and maximize our joy in God. Not only right now, but in the life to come. So that we would see this suffering as a pathway that we truly are his disciples. Now, In verse 14, he gives a very specific example. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ. So this fiery trial is insults. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does it mean for the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon us? Well, this is an allusion to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the Holy Spirit is illuminating and enabling Isaiah to make this prophecy of the suffering servant that would come from the tribe of David, the stump of Jesse. There would be a shoot that would rise up. This will be the Messiah. And what is going to be new or distinctive about this Messiah The Spirit of God is going to rest upon him. And what Peter does is he says that same reality is now true of us. Now let's just reflect on how did the Spirit of God rest upon Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, he was baptized. And the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and landed on Jesus. And a voice from heaven rang out and it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the Holy Spirit landed on Jesus, rested upon Jesus, is the one that enabled Jesus to withstand all of the suffering, all of the persecution, all of the sleepless nights, all the way until the cross. So that in the mist of getting his beard plucked out and the crown of thorns piercing through his skull and as he's beaten so that people don't even recognize him as human. He just looks like hamburger meat that he did not call down legions of angels and destroy all his enemies because he had the spirit enabling him to walk all the way in the path of obedience to to the father so that he would be crucified. And that very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that now dwells within us and rests upon us. And so if you're insulted for the name of Christ, what can help you withstand that? That the very same Holy Spirit that was with Jesus is the one that is with us, that upholds us. Jesus says, When you're dragged before courts and flogged, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't practice your speech. Don't have a couple of talking points because the spirit that is on you is going to give you exactly what you need. And we see that in Stephen, the first martyr. He gave the most beautiful sermon 
I don't think it was prepared. He didn't think that was coming. But the Spirit enabled him to speak words of faithfulness to Christ. And that's what Peter's trying to say for us this morning. He's laying another bar of rebar down on the foundation of our faith, saying, don't worry. When you're insulted, when you're maligned, when you're experiencing suffering for the name of Christ, it means you're blessed. You are blessed. You can rejoice and be glad because the very spirit of God is resting upon you, sustaining you, upholding you, keeping you, groaning on your behalf, giving us words in the moment. God will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. How were they able to withstand that fiery trial? God himself was with them. There were four people. I think that was Jesus. They didn't even smell like fire. Think about that. You sit by a fire pit for an hour and you smell, you reek of fire from head to toe. And they didn't even smell like it. God protects his people all the way. The smoke didn't even get into their lungs. That's how God protects his children. And so whatever you're facing this morning, whatever you're facing at home this morning, whatever trials may be coming next week, next year, unemployment, you're getting fired, people at school are making fun of you, get kicked out of the school that you go to, whatever it may be, whatever trials may come, we do not need to fear. We can rejoice and even be glad and celebrate the reality that we are counted worthy to suffer with Jesus Christ. And this confirms our faith and the Holy Spirit is now resting upon us and enabling us so that we might walk in obedience to Jesus. The very third person of the triune God is with us. He's with us. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So God uses our suffering to test us, to strengthen us, to deepen our faith, and he redeems our suffering so that it would confirm in our heart of hearts, oh, Jesus is my treasure, that we would know that. And that we can even rejoice and celebrate because Jesus is coming back. We're going to have glory upon glory upon glory. We will behold his face. And right now, the spirit is resting upon us so that we have life and faith. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Once I have them, they're mine forever. So choosing to suffer with Jesus in this life only seems crazy if you believe that this is all that this life has to offer. But if we believe that there is a life to come, eternity hangs in the balance. The glory and the reproach of Christ outweighs any of the treasures that this world offers. When the world says, you could win the lottery, you could have a lot of stuff, You could enjoy your life, never lift another finger for 20, 30, 50 years and have damnation for the rest of your life. Would you trade it all for all the riches and the glory and the peace and the hope and the inheritance that you can have in Jesus Christ? For some of us this morning, we haven't made that decision. We don't know. We have one foot in the world and one foot in the world wanting to follow Jesus. Maybe you're watching this morning 
and you're not sure, we want to call you to a greater joy, a greater satisfaction, a greater pleasure than this life can offer. A life surrender to Jesus means peace in the midst of storms, eternal hope in death, joy in suffering, love within a new blood-bought family, and the guarantee of everlasting, ever-increasing joy that will never cease and never end. If you're undecided on that most important question this morning, you need to decide. Today is the day of salvation. We would call you and encourage you. Reach out to someone at the church. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you this morning if you're undecided on that question. And believers, we get to experience joy and gladness. How can we suffer well? Because we're looking forward to a greater reward. That all that Jesus is to us will come to its full fruition and consummation finally on that day. So when we read the scriptures right now, we're not just saying, well, I, 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 I just read them because I guess that's what Christians do. But we're ransacking them for these promises and for these treasures to undo the lies of Satan that says, just get as much as you can out of this world. Squeeze all the pleasure you can because heaven's going to be boring. We're reading these scriptures so that it would reshape our hearts and minds so that we see, oh, I cannot wait for Jesus Christ to return in all of the fullness of his glory. I can't wait, even if I never get married or I never get on the once in a lifetime bucket trip or I don't ever get to retirement. It's going to be so much better if Jesus came back right now because he is my treasure. He's precious. He's praiseworthy. He's true. He is our Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And all of God's people dive in the sea of affliction because we have the greatest pearl of great price. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my prayer for us this morning is that our foundation, if it was a little bit wet cement, not fully set, that it would become fully set with rebar throughout it so that it, we would be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that God is using and redeeming the sufferings and all the pain that we experience in this life to conform us to his image. What others mean for evil, God uses and means and redeems for good so that we would be conformed to his image. We'll be ready for heaven. Our hearts will expand and we'll be able to partake in all of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes and then he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be celebration, rejoicing and joy for all eternity, for all those who are called by his name. Let's pray. Oh God, that's my longing for myself, that I would be conformed to your image, that I would long for your coming again that your spirit would rest upon me. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters this morning.
those in this room, those watching from home, those in the chapel, oh, that our foundations would be strong, that our longings would be great for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that your spirit resting upon us would sustain us in all that comes. We thank you that you will never leave us, nor will you forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.